Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com. Find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. So I've mentioned this a time or two before, but Matthew is broken up. The middle of Matthew is broken up, broken up into these five major sections, a narrative and discourse five times. The end of each discourse is noted by a phrase like this. When Jesus had finished these things or when Jesus had finished saying these things. And uh, of course, Matthew 13 is all parables, parables about the kingdom. And so this starts off by letting us know, okay, we finished the parables about the kingdom and we're moving into a new section of narrative. And so here, once again, we have that phrase, when Jesus had finished these parables. Again, this remember, this blog is mostly about storytelling, this podcast, mostly about the storytelling of scripture and what we can learn about the scripture, about how to interpret the scripture just from the storytelling. Well, here you have writing clues, narrator clues, storytelling clues that help you outline the the book of Matthew. Um, so there's a, a book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's by Gordon Fee and a couple other people whose name I can't remember. It's probably about $12 on Amazon, maybe $8, something like that. I really recommend picking it up. It will teach you how to read uh, books of the Bible, you know, a book at a time, how to really break it down and outline it, uh, how to figure out, you know, what the book is about and sort of what are the arguments being made. It's very important to do that. Otherwise, you could walk away misunderstanding some theology or you could uh, walk away not fully understanding what your role is in the kingdom. So um, just uh, uh, as an instance, uh, if you were to read a story about, um, you know, what what Judas did about um, betraying Christ or, or going and hanging himself. If you were to read that and try and get a spiritual principle out of that, you might walk away with some wrong understanding. If you don't understand the context of who Jews, Judas is in the story and that he is a, 
he is a betrayer, that he's not the hero, that Jesus is the hero. All right, that's an overly simplistic example. But here's a more subtle example. The book of Ephesians is a great example. It's a very encouraging letter to the Ephesian church, a church where Paul was the primary minister or some kind of head pastor or something like that for a while, uh, three years or so, we learned from the book of Acts. And he has lots of things to say about how to live and how not to live in the later chapters of the letter. Well, of course, chapter and verse was something that was added later to aid us in studying, breaking down, memorizing scripture uh, being able to find, locate passages together very quickly. That was something that was added later by men. Obviously, when Paul wrote his letter, it didn't have chapters and verses in it. It was just a letter. It was a single letter. And what we often forget, because we read you know, a few verses at a time, a couple of paragraphs at a time, maybe three to five chapters at a time, what we forget is that a six-chapter book like Ephesians was all read in one sitting every time it was read. It's a letter. You know, if you got a letter from somebody that you cared about, you wouldn't open it up and you know, read a couple paragraphs of it and then set it down and come back the next week and read another paragraph. You know, no, you'd sit down and you'd read the whole thing all at once and you would take it in all at once and you would take it in in the order in which it was told. So when you look at a letter like Ephesians, what you see uh, Paul for four chapters is reminding the Ephesian church who they are, that they belong to Christ, that they've been saved by him, that they were once his enemies, but they've been adopted into the family of God and the family needs to be unified and needs to act as one together, and that there's a real power there from the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And because of that, well, now here's what you should do and not do in your life, and here's some behaviors you should have and not have. And so there's a big four-chapter context for the several paragraphs of you know behavioral stuff. But oftentimes, we'll pluck the behavioral stuff out and want to throw it at somebody without spending four times as much time reminding them who they are and to whom they belong. So to only focus on a piece of scripture is to really take it out of context, misunderstand it, misunderstand how it should be used, misunderstand its power. Well, the gospel of Matthew really is the same. I mean, it's, it's, it's a plea. It's a plea to first century Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And not only that, he's God in the flesh. And because of that, he has authority over everything. He conquers men. We need to listen to him. And he has a mission for us. And so Matthew, a Jew himself, uh, if he's the writer, and we believe that he is, traditionally that's why it's uh, called the Gospel of Matthew. Again, these uh, Gospels did not have a title written at the top of them. This is the traditional name that's been assigned to it. But we uh, have the pre pretty good idea that it was written by Matthew, the very Matthew that is uh, also known as Levi, following Jesus around, part of the Twelve. Matthew, uh, with a name like Levi, well, he's Jewish, and he's writing to his fellow contemporary first century Jews. And so this plea that he's making is essentially a persuasive speech. It is uh, an attempt to say, here's why I know Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to convince you to follow him. I'm going to convince you of what that means and how important that is and why it is good news. So Matthew would have been read or recited to early audiences, to the first hearers, all at once. Now to sit down and read all 28 chapters of Matthew seems a little daunting for us, but that would have been nothing to the people of the time. It would have been kind of a typical sermon. I mean, if you think about how long it would take to read through all 28 chapters of Matthew, oh, what would it take? Hour and a half, maybe a couple hours. 
I mean, certainly we had gospel meetings that go on for hours and hours per day. Uh, and so Matthew was that kind of thing. And so if you're speaking to a group of people for that long, you need to organize your thoughts. You need to break it up so that they can comprehend and understand. And so in each of these major sections, Matthew is uh, trying to make a, a core point and is uh, offering supporting evidence for the point that he's making. So once again, let's look at these five divisions. So we've got these five discourses in Matthew. So chapters one and two are, are Jesus being born and they're, you know, the genealogy and they're really connecting it to the Old Testament. Really with the language that's used there, Matthew is saying, hey, this is a continuation of scripture, a pretty bold claim for um, a tax collector writing in uh, the first century. Beginning with chapter three and going all the way through 25, you have these five discourses, or actually it's a narrative and discourse paired together. So the narrative sets up a context, which provides then the discourse. When the discourse is done, you have a phrase like we've seen here in the text, when Jesus finished these things. These are the five discourses that we see. Now, these are my names that I've given them based on how I'm looking at it and, and what I think Matthew is about. Uh, there are other more traditional names that other people give up. These are the names that I give. So uh, the first section is the kingdom announced. This is Jesus showing up. This is Jesus being baptized, uh, being tempted in the desert, selecting his first disciples. And of course, the discourse, the first discourse of the kingdom announced is Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom is going to look like. When you are living in the kingdom, you'll know because this is the way people will act and live. The next section was about kingdom authority. And there's a couple of things that happen here. Number one, you see that Jesus has authority over a number of different powers, that he has authority over illness, that he has authority over um, the death even, that he has authority over evil spirits, that he has uh, an authority in his teaching, that he has authority over the weather. You see this in this section on kingdom authority. And the discourse here is what's usually called the missionary discourse. It's where he sends the disciples out and he gives them some of his authority. In fact, in this version that we've been reading, he uses the word authority. I give you the authority to go do these things. And so that missionary discourse, which we also find in Luke chapter nine, other places, uh, Jesus is taking the authority that he's now established through the narrative. And in the discourse, he's giving some of that authority to the disciples. So he selects the disciples, then he gives them some of his authority. So now we come to the middle section, which we just finished looking at last lesson, the kingdom arrival. Jesus is saying, surprise, the kingdom is actually here. I'm not just talking about something that's going to come one day. I'm talking that it's here now, and you know it's here now because I'm the Messiah. Here's the proof that I'm the Messiah, and not only am I the Messiah as you think, but I'm better because I'm God in the flesh, which means I have way more power than just uh, a human who would be anointed by God, as important as that person might be. I'm more than just a son of David. I'm more than just a Solomon. I'm more than just a prophet. I'm more than just a Jonah. And Matthew really uh, keeps constant that theme. He's a, he's a better Abraham. He's a better Judah. He's a better Moses. He's a better David. He's a better Solomon. He's a better Jonah. He's a better Messiah than the Messiah people were expecting. And so Jesus announces it's not just close. It's it's right here. I am the kingdom. I am the king who reigns. And so now we move into this section on kingdom action. Now, another thing that I pointed out before was this idea of chiastic structure. And so now here you can see everything is kind of arranged 
in this chiastic structure where you've got one, two, three. This third level right here of kingdom arrival is the, is the chi. That's the thing in this middle. That's what changes everything. And so now we're going to tell the story kind of in reverse. Not the exact same story, but you're going to see some similarities to some of these earlier parts. But now everything has changed because Jesus isn't just a powerful teacher or a miracle worker. No, Jesus is God. We've established that now in the kingdom arrival section. And so now the next sections are going to look at the same types of things that the first two sections looked at, but it's going to look at it now through the lens of Jesus being God, of Jesus being the God who created the universe. And so this section on kingdom action is going to be very parallel to the section on kingdom authority. You're going to see Jesus have uh, different kinds of authority over different things, and you're going to see him uh, arguing with the Pharisees and even his disciples. So you remember, he selected his disciples in the kingdom announced. He gave them authority in kingdom authority. He revealed the truth about himself to them in kingdom arrival. And now at kingdom action, it is expected that they will have spiritually mature, that they will have spiritually grown, that they will know more than they did before. So what you're going to see in this section is Jesus no longer being as patient with them as he was before, because now they've been with him a while. They should know these things already. And the fact that they still have questions, the fact that they still don't understand, the fact that they're still unable to do some things is proof that their faith has not grown as maybe it should. There's higher expectations now, and Jesus is speaking more sternly to them now. This is a very important concept about spiritual growth. Okay, You have two people wearing a diaper. Is that normal? Well, one of them is six months old. The other one is 37. So for a six-month-old, wearing a diaper is perfectly normal. You wouldn't blame a six-month-old for wearing a diaper, not being able to uh, control bodily functions, right? But a 37-year-old, if that 37-year-old needs to continue to wear a diaper, then that's there's something physically wrong or possibly mentally wrong with that individual. So spiritual growth is kind of the same thing. There are some things that when you're first selected as a disciple and you're kind of first given some authority and sent out on mission, you know, there's some things that you can kind of expect to see and are perfectly normal. It's perfectly normal for a spiritual child to be self-focused. Children are self-focused. A spiritual child is going to be trying to figure out what, what is this faith? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, how do I read the Bible? What does this mean? Well, I don't understand these stories. What are these parables talking about? But by the time you reach some kind of spiritual adulthood, as you're moving from young adulthood and into becoming a hopefully a spiritual parent yourself, discipling other people, there needs to be some spiritual maturity, some spiritual formation. And uh, Jesus is expecting that of his disciples. And when they don't display it, he calls them out on it. Remember the very last thing that Jesus said in the kingdom parables discourse, which we finished, uh, he made this comparison about someone who was a teacher of the law, but becomes a disciple. They bring the old and the new together, and they just have this wealth of treasure in their home, uh, storehouses of old and new. And so what we're going to see in this next section, it's a great setup for this next section, because we're going to see um, Pharisees who are masters of the old. They were teachers of the law. They knew the old scriptures very well. And the disciples who've been taught the, quote, new things. And we're going to see how Jesus speaks to both of them. And this is all about kingdom action. The discourse that comes at the end of this is going to be Matthew 18, which we'll look at in the next lesson. And it's uh, normally called community regulations, but it's really about how the discipleship community will live with each other and treat each other. But to do that, Jesus really has to set up 
the, the expectations of people who are either teachers of the law or who are disciples, what Jesus expects of them. So let's go back to the text. And we'll start right here once again in Matthew 13 and verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue. And they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? And um, so he did not, uh, skipping down to 58, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. That unbelief and this lack of faith is going to be uh, important in this section. Matthew 14. Now we come back to John the Baptist. This is the first time we've heard about John the Baptist in just a little minute. So what happens? At that time here, the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Well, this is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. So chronologically, what happens here is Herod the Tetrarch thinks that John the Baptist has now been raised from the dead. Well, if you only know about John the Baptist from what we've studied so far in Matthew, you didn't know he was uh, dead yet. And so the next story that's going to happen is how all that happens and uh, his beheading. But the real point of the story here is that by this point in time, John the Baptist is already dead. Jesus has such power that Herod assumes it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not a big fan of Herod and everything that he was doing that you read about here and with his brother's wife and everything. And so he assumes John the Baptist has come back from the dead and brought back powers from the other side. And so that's why he's afraid of John the Baptist. So we're not going to read the whole story of John the Baptist beheaded here, but just know that he was beheaded. And there's the story. You can read it later when you go back to reread this. Feeding of the 5,000 starts here in verse 13. Uh, When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we have only five loaves and two fish here, they said to him. Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now, I um, read this section a lot out of Luke. And uh, there's a few different details in Luke's version. It's obviously extremely similar, but Luke does include some details that aren't included here. Like when Jesus has them sit down on the grass, he has them sit sit down on the grass in groups of 50 each. So he's sort of segmenting the group into a manageable population. There's lots of teaching that can be done there about discipleship and discipleship contexts. Uh, We haven't looked at the discipling handbook in a while. That's something that um, I've done a, a series on what is discipleship, I've done a series on Discovery Bible Study, and we used the Discipling Handbook uh, during that time. And I'm see if I can get it pulled up here. Yeah, here we go. And so this idea about discipleship contexts, you have the uh, the public, the social, the personal, the transparent, divine. Public is 70 plus people, socials 20 to 70. So you see Jesus breaking the group from this large public gathering into smaller social groups. 
And then you have the personal group. This is the 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 the, the personal context. That is the uh, size group of people that can live life together and really know each other. And it's six to 20 people. Well, how many disciples are there? Well, there are, there are 12. And then plus Jesus, of course, makes 13. And so what you have here is you have in Jesus and the disciples, you have this personal context. Uh, in our church scenarios, we might call that life groups or small groups or something like that. Something that is a manageable size. Some small groups are 40, 50 people. Those aren't really small groups. Those are social groups. It's hard for people to really truly know each other at a deep level in a group like that. But in a personal group, you can uh, know people's names, you know where they work, know about their kids and um, open up, have some vulnerability, do some study together. It's harder to do that in a group much larger than 20. So with Jesus and the disciples, you have a personal group, and these are people who live life together and encourage each other and push each other. Then farther down from that, you have the transparent level, a group of two to five people, and we'll come back to that in just a little bit. So what I want to show you here is that uh, even though we're kind of jumping out to Luke to pull some details about this story, Jesus is taking a large public group where he's healing people and presumably doing some preaching like he was probably in Sermon on the Mount. And now he's breaking them up into a smaller group, into social groups, and he's assigning members of his personal group to go and serve the social groups. So if you take 5,000 people and you divide it by 50, that's what, 100, right? Uh, check my math on that. And so now you have 12 people serving 100 groups. So 100 divided by 12 is uh, eight and change, I think. And so what you have is about eight or nine groups per person. So while feeding 5,000 people seems like an unmanageable task for one person to pass food around to, you know, um, eight or nine groups of 50 people each, that seems much more manageable. In fact, you could actually imagine that, uh, you know, Andrew going out to his eight groups of people where he's giving food and passing that around, that he would actually get to know some of the people there and possibly build some relationships. So what I want to show uh, as we come back to the text and look at this, and sorry, I did not have that on the screen before. I thought that I did. Uh, but he says, you give them something to eat. And so he blesses the food. And of course, the power is supplied by Jesus, but he gives the food to the 12. And the, it says uh, here in verse 19, he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. There was leftovers. How many? Oh, 12 baskets of leftovers. How many disciples are there? Well, oh, there's 12. Okay. And so uh, 12, 12 disciples. You see what's happening here. Jesus is putting this miracle into the hands of his disciples. Again, the power is coming from Jesus. It's Jesus's idea, but he's making the disciples do it. Jesus doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't feed him. The disciples feed him. And as a reminder of the event, he has them carry uh, each a basket of leftovers, just as a reminder of the power. Now, it's very likely that the people understood the miracle that was going on, but there's not necessarily any specific indication that they did. In fact, no, a miracle was going on. Maybe they just thought there was enough food somehow. Uh, probably they realized it was a miracle. But definitely they were fed. In fact, we learn over in John's version of the story, uh, it's John chapter 6, I believe, when uh, John tells the story, he tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but then he continues and tells what happens after that. The crowd essentially chases Jesus and they say, hey, do it again. We want more food. And uh, Jesus says, well, you know, I'm not going to feed you again. In fact, if you really 
want to be right with God, if you really want to have eternal life, you have to eat me. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people didn't really know what to do with that. And they all left except for the 12. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, now, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave also? And Peter, in one of his rare moments of uh, wisdom, says, where are we going to go? You have the words that give life. And this is, of course, in John's section on Jesus being the bread of life. So all those details aren't here in the story, but I bring up all those details from Luke and from John to show you the reality of the actual event that happened that's diverting from the storytelling. Remember, the storytelling and what happened are two, two different things. They're certainly related. The storytelling should communicate what happened, but it can only communicate part of what happened, and it will often only communicate the parts that it needs to make the um, the, the argument that it's making in, in the story that it's telling. But I bring all these other points in from these other Gospels to, to make a point about discipleship. The feeding of the 5,000 was not for the 5,000. Now, certainly it served the 5,000. They did feed 5,000 people. In fact, Matthew says it's 5,000 men besides the women and children. So it could have been ten or 15,000 people or more. So it certainly did serve the people. Jesus is there. He's healing people, presumably teaching as well. So there's certainly service that's being happened to that large public group. But who really learned or should have learned from this miracle? Well, it was the disciples. They were the ones who were given the authority. They were the ones who were given the mission. They were the ones who went out and did the work. They were the ones who brought back in uh, the results of the work. Uh, in this case, the baskets of leftovers. It was they that should have learned something and had their faith increased. So what you see here, again, in parallel with the second section, the kingdom authority section, Jesus is now giving authority to the disciples, but he has higher expectations of them. We'll see that more of that going on beginning with this next story. So continuing in Matthew 14, verse 22, uh, immediately he made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of them to the other side. And uh, as this is happening, they see Jesus walking on the water. Jesus says, don't worry, it's just me. Peter says, well, if it is you, Lord, then command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter climbs out of the boat, walks on the water toward Jesus. He begins to sink because uh, he saw the strength of the wind and cried out for Jesus to save him. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, caught hold of him, said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And here you see now Jesus really beginning to rebuke these disciples for their inability to let their faith grow. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. Now compare this back to Matthew chapter eight, when Jesus stills the storm. And they say, who is this that even controls the wind and the waves? This time when Jesus gets in the boat and the wind and the waves go, go away, they don't say, who is this? They say, truly, you are the son of God. See the parallel from the authority section, Matthew chapter eight, and this section, it's the same story, but now we know that Jesus is God. Also different in the story is Peter wants to step out of the boat and walk on the water. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter wants to walk on the water. Peter knows that if Jesus commands him to do something, he'll give him the power to do it. And so uh, Jesus commands him and Peter is able to walk. When Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. And it's the waves that are terrifying him. It's the storm that is terrifying him. And what's really interesting is that it is those very waves that Jesus walks across to reach Peter and save him. So, so many times when we have turmoil and chaos going on in our life and that 
forces us sometimes to sink, our spirits to sink, to become discouraged. Very often, it is that exact time in our life that Jesus uses to step in and to grab us by the hand and say, why did you doubt? So if you're experiencing a time like that, I think all of us have a little bit of um, depression and anxiety going on with everything going on in the world right now. Just know that these are the waves God walks across, that he has authority over. Uh, Also, listen to this language. Jesus, on top of the waves, on top of the water, on top of the abyss, on top of the chaos. Doesn't that sound just like Genesis 1-1? Remember when I said Genesis, the first sentence of Genesis summed up the entire Bible? Here you see it displayed once again. God hovering over the face of the water, um, desiring for there to be light. Uh, Next, uh, let's move on. There's some miraculous healings. They come across to the shore at Gennesaret. And uh, some people there um, brought him a a bunch of sick people and he healed them. Even people that just touched his robe were healed. So again, what you see here is who has faith. This is sort of a common theme really in all of scripture, but it's really doubled down on here in the Gospels. Uh, the disciples are kind of scratching their head. They're not sure how to have faith. The Pharisees don't have faith at all. They don't believe, they think Jesus is an evil person. They think he's a blasphemer. They think that uh, he gets his power from demons. Who is it that has faith? It's the poor. It's the sick. It's the demon possessed. It's the uh, prostitutes. It's uh, the Gentiles. And uh, so we see a very similar thing happening here. So one thing you need to know about, uh, so Gennesaret, the uh, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, is actually called Lake Gennesaret even today. And so that just is referring to sort of the Galilee region there. So this place, Gennesaret, the specific you know town that you might call Gennesaret, is probably referring to the Gentile side, the Gentile area of the Galilee. So if you happen where the feeding of the 5,000 probably happened and you cross the Gennesaret, you'll end up somewhere uh, over on the Gentile side. So let's see what happens now. Um that he's uh, over there. So now there are some Pharisees over where he is, and it says that they're from Jerusalem. So apparently they've traveled up to this area. I don't know if they're on vacation, if they're seeking Jesus out um, or what, but they're from Jerusalem and they have um, uh, approached Jesus and they start criticizing his disciples. Why do they break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. Now, this is not just about cleanliness as as we know it, as we think about it with, you know, washing our hands with coronavirus or, or as we would normally just wash our hands you know, before we eat. But this is about a ceremonial washing. So this uh, rite of baptism that we have, it's a very special thing for Christians and it really comes in only one form. But for a first century Jew, you baptize all kinds of things. You baptize all the time. Baptism, baptize just means dip. It just means that you, you're dunking something underwater. And so uh, there were, you know, rules for uh, baptizing your pots and pans to make them ceremonially clean. You had to dip yourself. You had to baptize yourself before you went into the temple. Uh, In fact, outside the temple in Jerusalem, there are uh, probably 150 or 180 uh, mikvot. So a a mikvah is a baptistry. That's all it is. It's a, a stone hole in the ground with a staircase going down, sort of a divider going down the staircase. And so you went down the unclean side and dipped in the water and came back up. And people just kind of, they just cycled people through and they had people that were, um, you know, uh, temple servers that were down there doing the baptisms. And you had to be ceremonially clean before you could go into the temple. Now, 
Ask yourself, is this really about cleanliness? If you're going down into a baptistry that's in a rock hole where, you know, a hundred people in front of you have gone down and dipped their dirty bodies in this, you know, how clean is this water? Well, it's not very clean. So it's not about um, some kind of a biological cleanliness, but instead it's about a, uh, cleanliness in a, a, a purity sense and a, in a, in a spiritual sense, a ritual sense. And so that's what the elders are talking about here. The tradition of the elders. Why don't they ritually clean their hands? Something that is not, uh, expressed by the law, but is expressed by the Pharisees traditions, which they say is, uh, an expression of the law. They, they say their, their interpretation of the law essentially is the law. They feel like they've interpreted it correctly. And so, uh, Jesus gives them a big long answer, which we won't go through, but essentially says, um, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. He quotes Isaiah, the prophet here. You worship me in vain because you're teaching as doctrines, human commands. So once again, we must be very careful when we're studying scripture that we don't say things that it doesn't say, that we do say the things that it does say, and that we take seriously its claims, claims like in the parables of the kingdom that uh, branches that don't bear fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. We need to take that seriously. The Bible says it. Jesus says it. We need to understand what that means, and we need to make sure that we take it seriously. Likewise, we don't need to add on a bunch of stuff to uh, Scripture. Jesus says what he says. He says enough, didn't feel the need to say anything more, and we need to leave it at that. So if you want to use the old adage, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, then uh, that's fine. Interpretation is helpful. Uh, expanding on things that you read to apply them to modern day situations is helpful. Uh, for instance, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about uh, smoking meth or smoking pot, uh, but it does talk about sober, being sober minded. And certainly you can draw very easily parallels between the principles of scripture and more modern situations that may not be specifically enumerated in scripture. Uh, you know, honestly, the Bible doesn't have a ton to say about how we should do church. It does have some to say about how we should do church. It really does. And we need to do those things correctly and acknowledge those things. But uh, Wednesday night Bible study, I mean, that's not in the Bible. Does that make it wrong to do because the Bible didn't say to do it? Well, I don't think anybody would say that that was wrong to study, get together and study the Bible on Wednesday. Sunday night services, is that wrong to do because the Bible doesn't say to get together twice on the Lord's Day? Does it say that we have to meet in the morning? Can't we meet in the evening? Right? So scripture doesn't always give us very defined things. In fact, some of the things that Jesus says, Jesus himself talks very little about church because the church didn't exist until after he was ascended. Right? It began in Acts 2. And so who writes the most about what how the church should, should act? Well, it's Paul. And he's sort of declaring some of these things for the first time. Hey, here's how you handle these situations in your church. He writes it to churches like the Corinthian church, where they're having all kinds of craziness go on. Paul sets some of the standards. You know, here's kind of how church should go. Even with all of those ideas and thoughts and, and commands, there's still just not a ton about how we ought to do church and what we ought to do for children and should we separate by age groups and should we have Sunday school and these kinds of things? But we're able to make good, rational decisions about those things. What we can't do is say that the Bible commands us to do those things that we have just decided is a good idea based on biblical principles. So I hope you can understand the difference. So when the Bible speaks very specifically about some things, we should hold those things in a closed hand. When the Bible gives us principles and we make interpretations upon those principles, we should hold those with an open hand. 
and recognize that uh, we are uh, applying some things in a way that might fit with our culture and might not fit with another culture, for instance. Now, Paul does that even in some of his letters, speaks about some cultural things that are going on in the churches that aren't necessarily something that would need to be applied today. But there might be an underlying principle that very much needs to be applied today. So when Bible speaks very specifically, broadly, generally to all people, we need to hold those things with a closed hand and hold on to them tightly and not let them go. But when it speaks in principles that we have to kind of work and apply, we build some of our tradition on top of it. Tradition's a great thing. Tradition, it can be a great thing. It helps us to remember where we came from. It helps us to, I mean, things like uh, even songs. You know, traditional songs help us remember, memorize scripture. A lot of scripture that I have committed to memory is because of songs that I've learned. But we need to recognize that maybe some of those specific traditions or maybe some of the specific ways that we do things, they might be very good, but they might be how we've chosen to interpret biblical principles. And we need to hold those with an open hand. All of that to say when the uh, elders here are saying, we have these traditions of the elders and your disciples don't follow it. Therefore, they're not following the law. Jesus is saying, don't confuse the law of God with the doctrines of man. They're not the same thing because you honor me with your lips. It goes back to this whole thing that he said to them a couple of times now, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You're, you're nailing every point of the sacrifice and you're missing the entire point of the sacrifice because the point of the sacrifice is to have a merciful heart, to show mercy, to beg for mercy. And it's the mercy that is desired, not the sacrifice. Let's go back to the text. We only have a few minutes left to get through a lot. So Jesus talks about uh, defiling is not what goes in a person's mouth, but what comes out of a person's mouth. And he talks about all of the evil things that come out of someone's heart and how the heart is connected to the mouth. Then we see a Gentile mother and her faith. She comes um, because her daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Look at this woman, verse 22. She's a Canaanite woman. Now, in other versions of the scripture, they call her a Syrophoenician woman. Uh, both are true. Uh, I won't get into the history and geography, but e either word could, it's, it's kind of like I'm an American and I'm a Tennessean. Well, how could that be? Well, you obviously know how that can be. Same kind of things happening here. She's a Canaanite and she is uh, Syrophoenician. Why would Matthew say that she's a Canaanite? Well, if you were with us for the Genesis series, you know about the Canaanites. They're named after Canaan, who was the son of Ham, Ham, who defiled his father, Noah, probably based on our study that we did there, probably what he did was raped his own mother as a way of usurping his father's power. Canaan is probably the child that was produced because of that rape. And that's why in Genesis, Canaan, not Ham, Canaan is cursed. Canaan is the product of incest, much like uh, Moab and Ammon, the uh, sons of the daughters of Lot, who were also produced by incest. And because of their ancestral history, they were looked at as uh, you should avoid this group of people. You should not intermarry with them. And so now here we have this Canaanite woman and Jesus has an interaction with her. And even the Canaanite woman has such great faith that Jesus cannot ignore her. So the Pharisees and the disciples are having trouble with their faith. But here, a Canaanite and a Canaanite woman on top of that. Women were not very well regarded at all at this time in history. And so not only was this person a Canaanite, she was a Canaanite woman, and she has greater faith than the scholars of the law or the disciples of Jesus. 
And so uh, Jesus goes on healing many people and passing along the Sea of Galilee. He goes up on a mountain. Then we have the feeding of the 4,000. Again, this is over in that Gentile territory over on the northeast side of the Galilee. And he has compassion on the crowd. Again, there's a feeding that takes place here. This time they have seven loaves and a few small fish. But once again, they gather up uh, um, uh, seven large baskets full. So there are um, uh, leftovers even after the miracle is over. And uh, a lot of people think that the seven here is in reference to, you know, how we kind of say the seven seas, meaning all the water on the earth. Oh, he sailed the seven seas. Well, he's been, that just means he's been all over. This idea of seven is sort of an, uh, the idea of completeness, of perfection. And so um, a lot of people think that this is specifically in reference to all the peoples of the earth. Again, hinting already, even in this very Jewish gospel, Jesus is going to bring the Gentiles into this. He just told a Canaanite woman she had great faith, and now he's feeding 4,000 Gentiles and there's seven baskets of leftovers, kind of a sign that this is the seven peoples of the world, you know, the, the all the people of the world. And then look here at the end, they go to, uh, they get in the boat and they cross back over to a place called Magadan. So if you go from the northeast down to the southwest corner of Lake Gennesaret of the, of the Sea of Galilee, you get to a place called Magadan, or as we would call it, Magdala. You might recognize that from um, the name of Mary the Magdalene, Mary from Magdala. And so in uh, something that's very interesting about modern day uh, Magdala is there is an uh, archaeological dig that has been going on there only for a couple of decades now. They only recently discovered Magdala, actually. One thing that they discovered there, interestingly, is what's now called the Jesus Boat. And here it is now in the museum, which I think is uh, there in Magdala, I think. And it was essentially petrified wood that was in the mud under the water. And as they were digging it out, I think they were, um, I think it was part of the archaeological dig, or maybe they were building something there. Anyway, they found this boat in the mud. And it's essentially a perfectly preserved boat from around the time of Jesus. So it would be very tempting for us to say, well, it, it survived so long because this is the boat that Jesus was in. Actually, the dating on the boat is about 100 years before Jesus. But it does show us the type of boat that Jesus would have been in traveling from Gennesaret to Magdala. This is, of course, just the bottom of the boat. Uh, this would have been uh, sunk down in the mud and the top half would have rotted away. But it gives you a sense of uh, possibly the, uh, the the scale. Uh, you can easily fit, you know, uh, 12 people in this boat, uh, in this fishing boat. So there is the boat from Magdala. Um Let's continue on looking at the scripture. Moving on now to Matthew 16. So then he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And first of all, he's speaking with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's saying, hey, you can recognize the signs in the sky. You know when one thing means good weather and another thing means bad weather, but you can't look at the sign of the times and understand what's happening. And so when you ask me for a sign about who I am, that shows that you're just an evil and adulterous generation, not because you ask for a sign, but because you are evil and adulterous. You don't believe it. And so no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And then he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And verse seven says they were discussing among themselves. Well, we didn't bring any bread. They obviously don't get the little parable that he's trying to say here. So what does he say? Verse eight, 
You of little faith. Once again, they should understand by now. They should be able to keep up, but they can't. So he has to explain it to them. You can almost hear the exasperated tongue. Why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? <laughs> Didn't we just feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves? Didn't we just feed 4,000 people and the baskets of overflowing? So uh, then they understand finally what that means. So now they come to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is sort of really outside of any other place that Jesus uh, hung out. It's a vacation spot. It's sort of a, a little resort area. And at Caesarea Philippi, there is a big cave there known as the Gate of Hades. It's a big cave that goes down very deep. And uh, people, the locals throughout time, the pagans, the Gentiles, uh, believed that it was an opening to the underworld. And so that's why they called it the Gate of Hades. Hades, of course, was the underworld for the uh, Greco-Roman religion. And But uh, around outside the opening of this giant cave is a beautiful park. There's a uh, uh, water that runs through there and beautiful flowers and all kinds of other things. I've been there. It's a very picturesque location. It's a very lovely place. Uh, it'd be like any of us going down to the park or going on the greenway or something like that. It's just, but it's much more beautiful. It's just a really beautiful place to go. So here are the disciples, they kind of go on vacation. They kind of get off um, by themselves and go on vacation. So what happens? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? So remember, Jesus has established who he is in the last section on kingdom arrival. Now this is on kingdom action. So he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, very important to point out, all of these people are dead. So people recognize Jesus's power and that he must come from, quote, the other side, that he must come from um, someplace besides just earth because he has this unearthly power. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the anointed one, the Christos, the Messiah, the christened one, the son of the living God. So he doesn't just declare him the Messiah, but he also declares him the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, which I think is very interesting. Perhaps this is part of the sign of Jonah. And he uh, makes the proclamation here about uh, the building of his church, which unfortunately we'll have to kind of skip through just for time's sake. Maybe we'll come back and do another lesson on it at some point. Verse 21, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. So if anyone gives you grief about the fact that Jesus, uh, you know, talks about being raised on the third day, and in actuality, it was less than a 72-hour period, it's Friday afternoon, Sunday morning, possibly, possibly very early Sunday morning, uh, something we might even call Saturday night, it's so early, midnight or something, we don't know. By the time the people get to the tomb on Sunday, he's gone. The tomb is open already. So it's not a full 72-hour period. It's not a full three days and three nights. And so how do we uh, rectify this? Well, one scripture we need to look at is Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2. And what you see here in Hosea 6-2, this is this call to repentance. And in verse 2, it says, he will revive us after two days. And on the third day, he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. So what does this mean? Well, it's just showing that for Hebrew people, this was a little bit of an idiomatic expression that just means a short time, just two, two or three days. It's not long. And so uh, Jesus definitely is talking about the sign of Jonah. But when you count up based on what we think we know about when Jesus died and when he was resurrected, it's not three days and three nights like the story of Jonah was. 
it, it takes a, it goes across three days with Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but it's not a full three day period. But we do point back to Hosea six two, where you see or being raised up on the third day just means it was a short period of time. So um, when people want to really bog you down in, in real specific things like that, you can point to scriptures like this to show them that the hearers originally would not have been as bogged down by the specifics of those kinds of claims. They were a little more, uh, they were a little busy being impressed by the things that Jesus was doing and the words that he was teaching. So maybe we should focus on that too. All right, so let's go back to Matthew 16. Uh, so Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, oh, Lord, this will never happen to you, begins to rebuke Jesus. So Jesus turns around, re rebukes him back, calls him Satan. Sa uh, Satan is just a, a Hebrew word, which means accuser, all right, which just means adversary. And so uh, he may be calling him uh, the devil. What he's really calling him is, you're against me. You are Satan. You are being treasonous right now. You're a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but you're thinking about human concerns. And then after this, he says, anyone who wants to follow after me, remember the first thing he says to his disciples in Matthew 4, 19 is follow me. He says, well, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and keep following me. And then he gives uh, some uh, expansion on that. Red words, always important to uh, read and focus on. Matthew 17, we have the transfiguration. Here he takes up Peter, James, and John only. Let's go back very quickly to the discipling handbook. And you'll notice that transparent group, two to five people. Here it is. Jesus is going to really reveal himself in a way that he doesn't reveal himself to anyone else. And he's going to do it just with this small group of people. Another parallel here is with Exodus, uh, I believe it's Exodus 24, where they have the, the covenant feast uh, Moses goes up with a small group of people and they have the, the, the covenant celebration on Mount Sinai. So Moses takes up Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Jesus takes up Peter, James, and John. Goes up on a mountain. There is a bright light. There is a booming voice. And when the whole experience is over, uh, just as Moses glowed coming down from the mountain and had to wear the veil, Jesus, his face is changed and he shines and becomes... Um, uh, bright. And what we see here is that Moses and Elijah, while extremely important to the Jewish religion, at this point, the voice, the heavenly voice says, this is my son, listen to him. And when the fog clears, Jesus is the only one left. And so again, this reiterates and makes very clear, particularly to these disciples, Jesus is the one, he's on a mission from God and you need to listen to him. This is a great response to the episode that just happened with Peter in the paragraph before. So then they ask about, you know, why do they, why do people say Elijah must come first? Why do the scribes say that? Why do the people who know the scripture say Elijah must come first? Jesus says he must come first, and he did, and it was John the Baptist. Uh, and they actually understand that there in verse 13. We see Jesus having power over a demon here in 14. And notice what it says I, in verse 16. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And Jesus said, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? Well, who's Jesus talking to? <laughs> you know, I guess it's, he's talking to his disciples. What he's saying is, why haven't you grown up yet? Why haven't you learned how to do this? Why hasn't your faith grown? And Jesus is able to put the uh, demon away. The disciples ask, why couldn't we drive it out? And he says, because of your little faith. So once again, this section is really reiterating 
the authority given to the disciples, but now they're responsible for that authority and they should have grown in it. And when they show that they have not yet grown in it, uh, Jesus lets them know. Jesus gives them a second prediction of his death. And then we have a story here about the temple tax. Again, the law does require a temple tax, but requires to only pay it once. But the Pharisees came along and said that the temple tax was, temple tax was owed every year. So imagine if the IRS said, hey, you need to pay taxes once in your life, and then came along and said, no, actually, you need to pay taxes every year. How, would, how, how, how well would that go over? Not very well, right? Uh, and that's the same thing that's happening here. But Jesus says, you know, um, whatever, it's not a big deal. One thing I should point out about Jesus is you can learn lots of political things by reading uh, Jesus and how he responds and how to treat people and the principles of scripture. But when Jesus is specifically provoked about uh, specifically political things, he just really doesn't spend a lot of time on it. That's not what he's here for. He's here focused on the kingdom. He's focused on discipleship. He's focused on loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he's focused on loving his neighbor as himself. That's what we should be focused on. And so he uh, sends them to find a coin and pay the temple tax. And it's not really a big deal. And that brings us to the end of Matthew chapter 17, setting us up for Matthew 18, where you have the community regulations discourse, which we'll look at in the next lesson. So as we wrap up here, what's the lesson here? Big swath of text, but what you see over and over again is Jesus wanting you to mature and grow. Some of you have been watching these lessons since I began them back, I don't know, February, uh, March sometime, March, April, something like that. Uh, if you are listening to this on podcast, I know that there's, I think, over 40 hours of lessons now on the podcast. If you're listening to one of these a week, it'll take you over a year to get to this very lesson that you're listening to right now. And what I have to ask is, you know, are you just listening and putting it away and being encouraged and going about your business? Or are you growing? Has your faith grown at all? Because if your faith has grown, then you're going to do what Jesus said. If you're following Jesus, you're going to do what he said. You're, you've denied something about yourself. You've had some kind of repentance. You've taken up your cross in some kind of way, meaning you've realized the mission ahead of you and what it might cost you, but you do it anyway. And you're following him, which means you're committed to his mission. What is his mission? Seeking and saving the lost. That means you're reaching out to other people. You're sharing Jesus and the good news of the gospel with them. So if you've been listening all this time, I hope some of that change has happened. And if it hasn't, you can almost hear the words of Jesus pointed at you. Oh, you of little faith. It's an indictment, but it's also a request. Grow. Grow in your faith and follow me. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.